0: Hey there, listeners. This is Seth. I hope you're doing great today. Say, have you seen any of the recent conversations in the free RE Tipster forum? That's right, there are a ton of incredible conversations happening in this community that we've set up. It doesn't cost anything to see what people are talking about and to participate yourself. If you haven't joined in the fun yet, head over to retipster.com forward slash forum, create your own free account and start interacting with others who listen to the show. Seriously, there is an unbelievable amount of knowledge you can gain simply by networking with other industry professionals, asking other members about what's working for them and sharing your knowledge that only you have With other members who need to hear your insight. So, what are you waiting for? Come check it out. Again, that's retipster.com forward slash forum. And I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show. Let's get started. Everybody, how's it going? This is Seth Williams, and you're listening to the RE Tipster podcast. Today, I'm talking with Kevin Bupp. So, Kevin is a Florida based real estate investor and best selling author with over $250 million of real estate transactions. He has loads of experience with apartment buildings, single family portfolios, medical office space, self storage, assisted living, and his three favorite and by far most profitable mobile home parks, parking lots, and build-to-rent communities. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff because I I don't know anybody who's ever done stuff with parking lots. I've always known that's a thing. I just don't know anybody who does it. So I'm really interested to learn more about this. But uh, Kevin educates investors on how to locate, acquire, and create higher-than-average returns through commercial real estate investing. And he shares his experience through one of the longest-running commercial real estate investing podcasts. I'm going to be sure to link to his website and podcasts and all that stuff. In the show notes for this episode, you can find those at here.com forward slash 140 because this is episode 140. So with that out of
1: the way, Kevin, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Seth, I'm doing awesome. Always good to see you. And um, yeah, uh, excited to be here. Excited to be here with you.
0: Awesome, yeah. I'm glad to have you. So beyond what I just said, who is Kevin Bupp? How did you get into real estate? What's your story?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. You cover a lot of bases there, at least from a higher level. But um, you know, I'll, and I'll try to keep it keep it short here. So I, I'm 43 at present time, and uh, I always joke and say that I've never had a I've never had a real job. Um, uh, about the realest it ever got was uh, attended bar for a couple of years while I was going to school. Um, at the point in time when I got introduced to real estate and kind of did that on the side until I started making money with real estate, and then real estate. It's been you know literally for the past two plus decades, and so. Um, I'm kind of proud of that. Uh, you know, that, that I've never had to you know, sit behind a desk or anything like that. Or again, you know, I guess report, report to a real boss. I didn't, I didn't really consider my, my manager at the bar, a real boss, but I guess he was, he'd probably he, hate hearing that right now. But <laughs> so anyway, no, I, um, uh, I bought my first property. Um, uh, I got introduced to real estate when I was 19, bought the first property, uh, right around the age of 20. It was you know, within a year or so of, uh, being introduced to the, um, you know, to the investment space. And, um, Really, it was at the the guidance of a mentor. I I met a gentleman that was um, about double my age, and um, met him through a girl I was dating. It was her mom was dating this guy, and so anyway, he was a local real estate investor in the town I grew up in, and and uh, um, he just you know just generally speaking, he just seemed to you know to live a a little different of a lifestyle than what I knew growing up. I grew up in a very middle class family, never went without. You know, we did one vacation a year and. Um, both my parents worked, you know, uh, nine to five type jobs and just normal. It was all relative, right? Like I never went without. Um, we always had food on the table, and um, you know, I've said probably looking back, there was probably money challenges here and there, but again, just nothing that um that that really sticks out. But David was this this mentor's name. A little bit different. He had a lot of flexibility in his daytime. I remember he used to come over my girlfriend's. Um, uh, she, she with her mom while she was going to school, and uh, he would show up like during the week. And I'm like, Aren't you supposed to be at work? You know what I mean? Like that's what old people do. They go to work nine to five. And uh, but he'd be there at odd hours of the day and drove drove a car and just presented himself very differently. And um, anyway, just befriended him. And um, found out what he did, and it didn't really register so much. You know, he told me he owned rental properties and he collected, you know, uh, income from the renters on a monthly basis. They helped pay down his mortgage and he kept the, you know, the cash flow in between. You know the debt service and uh, what the actual rents were, and I'm like, okay, fair enough, that makes sense. But um, again, the context to that just wasn't fully there, and so it, it, it obviously did. He did well with that, but I didn't know enough to really fully understand it. And so, but bottom line is, um, you know, fast forward a couple months of knowing him, he invited me to a conference uh, in in Philadelphia, a boot camp that he had paid for it was a three day boot camp. His partner couldn't business partner couldn't go with him, and he invited me to go. And um, I don't know why he invited me. I guess maybe he saw a struggling nineteen year old at that time that didn't really have direction other than, you know, going to school with no direction and uh, attending bar, having fun. Um, and I and I accepted the offer. I knew he would paid like five thousand dollars for it, and so I thought that it was. Um, very great, uh, 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 gracious of him to to offer me to go. Um, and then you know that I would be absolutely stupid if I didn't go. That there has to be something I can learn if he just spent five thousand dollars to go. And um, and I attended. And um, after that boot camp, you know, I was overwhelmed. I was excited. There was a lot of people I met there that were making a lot of money, mostly fixing and flipping single family homes. Uh, there were a number of folks that were you know doing rentals like he did. But um, I just I met a lot of normal people. You know, that didn't seem all that different than me that were in my eyes doing big things you know talking to people that were making you know doing flips and making twenty, twenty five thousand 25,000. I was like, "Oh my gosh, only, you know, one property." Um and uh and I just I, I had this excitement in me that uh you know, I went back to Pennsylvania, went back to the, my my hometown and um you know, I, I was excited and overwhelmed that I wanted to apply all this information but I still didn't know where to start, right? I, this was all over my head. And I just went to Dave and I was like, you know i I thought about it um of how i would present you know my pitch to him of of you know how i could help him so that he could help me right and so that he could help me learn the business and ultimately i ended up kind of working for him for free for almost for a little over a year um basically i was at his house or his home office um out in the field with him wherever he needed me to be and do for him i basically i helped him like i was uh i was the paid or the, the unpaid assistant I did whatever he needed to be done. And in exchange for that, um, I helped him where I could in the business. And one of the big areas that he suffered was technology. You know, he just, I remember watching him struggle to put together a PowerPoint presentation for a, a private lender of his. And uh, what would have taken one of us probably 10 minutes, it took him like two days and it still looked like crap. Right? And so anyway, I, we, we basically added value to one another and, um, and I learned the business. And I got to meet a lot of people. A lot of his relationships became contacts of mine. And, um, and that was the start of it. I bought a you know, single family home at the age of 20. And uh, didn't really try to reinvent the wheel of what he what he was doing. You know, he owned a lot of single family and small multifamily properties. Uh, he was a cash flow investor, so he he always bought with the intent of holding. I learned very quickly though is that um, that first property I bought, I rented it and had a few hundred dollars a month of cash flow. That it was going to take me quite a long time to be able to save up enough money to buy the next one because I literally used the seven thousand dollars that I had saved up from bartending to buy that first property. Uh, you know, paired with one of his private lenders that that helped fund the deal. Um, and so I, I had to, you know, I, I, I evolved my model a little bit to where I would end up flipping a few properties, you know, uh, wholesaling a few properties and then trying to keep one. Wholesaling a few properties and then trying to keep one. And basically did that for for a number of years and built up quite a big portfolio of single family properties and small multifamily properties. And, uh, um, and then, you know, after that, ran, you know, got into commercial real estate. I've owned a little bit of everything from retail to office to self storage. And, uh, um, about 10 years ago, I got introduced to mobile home parks, um, which is where we've predominantly spent most of our focus over the past decade. And uh, you had mentioned parking lots and built to rent as well. And so, you know, parking lots is something we can definitely talk about. It's something we've been buying for the last couple of years. And then built to rent, which is uh, probably one of the, what I feel is one of the best asset classes at present time. Uh, that's just, it's on a, on a roar right now. And, you know, given the, the shortage of, of rental housing in this country, um, uh, it's just it's a phenomenal asset class that has a I think a really really long runway. So, that's a, a fairly condensed version of my last twenty years. Um, two thousand eight hit me pretty hard for a couple of years. Uh, you know, had a lot of challenges that we that we had to work through. But all in all, um, real estate's been my life for for two plus decades, and I love every day of it. And uh, every day is different, and every day is a challenge, and every day's a sort of hurdle. But it, lots of rewards that come along with it all. So
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a great, great backstory. appreciate you sharing all that. There's so many different directions we could go with what you just said there, but you you mentioned uh, just at the end there about uh, how 2008 hit you pretty hard. I know that that issue is something a lot of people are concerned about right now as we record this because things have been going up and up and up for so long and we don't know when or how hard it'll hit, but most people are thinking there's going to be a huge recession at some point. And uh, how... What what happened in your situation? Like, what was so bad about it? How did you get through it exactly?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I will say that, you know, and, and I was in Florida at that time. Uh, I've been down in Florida since 2020, uh, 2002. So I've been down here, you know, uh, a little over 20 years. And um, I would say that Florida, was a very very different uh economy and real estate market than what it was than what it is today it just very so many different dynamics in place then uh back during the crash than what it is today you know back then there was a litany of factors that kind of played into why the housing crash hit certain areas so 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 much harder than than others i mean there were some parts of the country that they might have you know had some you know recessionary challenges but their housing market didn't necessarily crash. Like Dallas, never really saw like a significant crash. There might have been home price reductions and things of that nature, um, but there was enough new bodies moving into that state that were absorbing uh, that inventory. They didn't have a, a you know a surplus of inventory like you know Florida did, California did, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Phoenix. Uh, you know there was a number of of areas that just had a there was builders that were building a supply. For folks that weren't not yet here. Uh, in addition to that, you had you know a very different lending market as well. I mean, you had uh, you know waitresses that you know made three dollars an hour and tips that were that owned three properties and they're all no doc loans, right? They had they had to put any money down and um, you know just a. a when when things really hit the fan down here in Florida what what really occurred to me is that we or what ultimately impacted us in a, in a severe manner was we own rental properties single family rental properties and in a lot of the markets where we owned there was again these builders building these rooftops for population wasn't here when when things finally hit the fan um, a lot of those builders they couldn't sell their homes anymore they already had more than what the what there were bodies here to buy them um, but now people were actually construction trade dried up people were leaving people had to go somewhere else to find work like people were in fact that's where the you know the original uh, phrase was coined halfbacks you know people that literally left Florida and went halfway back up north and ended up in the Carolina somewhere because there was work there it uh, had a similar climate you know maybe not as warm but similar climate and uh, ultimately there was work available so people were going to wherever there was work available and so you had this you know, we we're, were losing population and we had the surplus of homes these builders started renting these brand new new homes out and they became our competition. You know, we were basically fighting for uh for tenants. Um again, you a tenant now had the option instead of renewing my unit at 850 a month, well, there's one right down the road that's brand new, 322. Um, they could get for, you know, maybe $150 more, $1,000 a month and uh you know, we ended up having to give a lot of concessions and you know, give discounts on rent and whatever we could do and we just we had a very rough couple of years where we lost um, tenancy. And, and and our and our positive cash flow turned to a negative one. I mean, we had you know, giving concessions and you know the you know the in, uh, refilling uh, those 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 vacancies went from you know, maybe taking three weeks to now three months or three and a half months to get bodies back in there and and you had to kind of you know kind of uh you know, get a lower quality of tenant in order to fill your unit and you know how that all turns out right? Like they're not as sticky, they don't necessarily pay on time, and it's just a it was a downward spiral and. Ultimately, uh, it was one that you know we we tried to work through it and try to hold on as long as possible. But the you know, the challenge was number one the, the values had dropped literally With, within a year. The the values were literally fifty percent of what they were at the peak, and so there was no fire selling, getting out of these units. It just it, that was people weren't buying at that point in Florida. In addition to that, the banks they didn't really have you know loss mitigation department set up. They didn't have they were not prepared for this onslaught of of um delinquencies and 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 foreclosures and uh you know most banks initially for the first year or so weren't willing they they didn't not that they weren't 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 willing to work with us they didn't know how to work with us they were so overwhelmed themselves and so there was no loan modifications or no no leniency um uh, from that standpoint so it just it got to the point to where we had to you know make some strategic decisions on some of our properties and um and unfortunately a number of them you know ended up back in the bank's hands and uh that what by far wasn't our choice, but um, it was the only way that we could uh, ultimately work through it so with that being said um, we're in a very different situation today I and mean, we we have a shortage of, ha- of housing you know and a lot of that shortage really stems from initially from that the, the great recession you know like we, we literally stopped building houses for for many many years and then ultimately as that ex- excess supply in those various markets got absorbed, we still never picked up the pace again building houses for the uh, you know, for the, for the population that was ultimately changing demographics that were changing and those that were now turning into homeowners or, or l- looking to become homeowners, we weren't feeding that need. And then COVID just literally, it was like icing on the cake as far as this, you know, the, you know, uh, you know s- supply uh, shortages and just again, building slow down again. And, um, It's just a a layered effect that ultimately has occurred. That now we find ourselves in a situation where we've got, you know, again, depending on what data piece you look at, roughly a shortage of 4 million uh, residences in this country. And, you know, if every of the major national home builders uh, that are out there, the big KB homes of the world, if if every single one of them literally doubled down and built double the amount of houses that they're currently bringing to market. We still wouldn't be able to resolve this shortage within the next 10 years, which is uh, that's a scary statistic. So anyway, just it's a very different world today than what it was back then. And so while we might go through, through an economic recession of some sort, I don't necessarily I, I don't foresee you know, it having that drastic of an impact on the on on the housing market. You know, I, I think I think there's some markets where for sale prices We'll probably see reduction. In fact, we're already seeing that. I mean, there's a number of markets where there's, you know, month over month for the last three or four months, since interest rates have, you know, crept up, um, they've seen, you know, two, three, 4% month over month price reductions, right? And so I I think we'll continue to see that. But what happens there on the flip side of that is all those individuals that were wannabe home buyers, now, I mean, they're forced into rental scenarios. And so, the rental market hasn't seen much of a slowdown at all. I mean, you, you've continually seen um, rent rent increases, you know, month over month in many, many of the major markets across the country, and we still have such a shortage of rental housing that I, I just I don't know when that trend is going to slow or when that, that train is going to slow down. So. Anyway, that's just I'm not an economist. Uh I just kind of you know, you know take take what I see and kind of piece it together and make the the best educated decision that I can. And that, that's kinda of how I feel. Uh I, I just think it's a it's it's a night 90 different uh, 98 day difference to today of what it was leading up to two thousand and
0: eight. So it sounds like uh when that huge catastrophic economic event happened, uh, you know, in two thousand and eight. So basically you just you pivoted by you don't build anymore. You just We're buying existing stuff. And I wonder, like, was it in that couple of years when it was a really rough time? And by the way, I can't imagine how hard that must have been. I mean, that's... uh, No, it was rough. Yeah, I just... (laughs) I mean, I I wasn't even really... I I was just starting my journey at the time. So, like, I was just getting in as things were in the tank. So, I was fortunate from that end. Good timing. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I just remember... I can just imagine from somebody in your position, like, I would be super gun-shy about buying anything after everything crashes like that. Like, just... It's such a shock to the system. So I guess I commend you for sticking around because a lot of people, I don't think, they just kind of got out of the business and didn't come back because it was just such a horrible thing to live through.
1: Yeah, I didn't buy anything for about three years. I did start a few other businesses uh, non-associated with real estate because uh, th- really three years was just more of damage control and just uh keeping my head straight more than anything else so it was, it was I really focused on like health and fitness and just you know being uh being on the right body of the right mind and uh and i and I picked a couple of businesses that I started that were health and fitness related that put food on the table and allowed me to kind of manage damage control on the real estate side and you know i looking back, I wish I would have um uh you know kind of recapitalized and and, and jump back in sooner rather than later, but you know it's it's funny you know, the the old adage of you know you want to buy when there's blood in the streets and it's it's it becomes very challenging to um you know to, to heed that advice when it's your blood right like and it's 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 you know when you see yeah great like I'm hurting and so now's the right time to buy but like it's hard to get out of your bubble as well so in florida everyone i knew even guys that had been through other recessionary periods um everyone i knew that i guys that were i felt were way smarter than i that had been in business for you know multiple more decades Watch them lose everything. Like it's hard to step away from that bubble and not realize that the world really isn't ending. It's just like your little world in Florida might be challenged, but ultimately, um, there's plenty other um, areas where one could have still made money in real estate. And, um, and we, we missed some years of buying opportunity, but you know, I dove back in and started really getting back into in eleven. But I bought my next, I guess you say the the, the first property uh, late eleven, early twelve, and so there's a you know good three and a half year span of uh, just really. Not sitting on sidelines, but just yeah, not not active in real estate. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how like
0: in every situation, like somebody is always winning. It's just a matter of how do I need to reposition myself so that I'm standing in the right place so that I will be winning next.
1: So and it's
0: hard to do when things are rapidly changing and nobody really knows what the new normal is. So
1: yeah, but you know everything happens for a reason. I'm I'm a firm believer in that. You know I don't I don't think that again. Just looking back, if if things would have been different, I don't think I'd ever been introduced to mobile home parks. I had never considered that as an asset class. Um, but like as, as as things tend to work themselves out, as long as you're open minded and and willing to you know meet new people and expand your horizons, I got introduced to a guy that happened to own a few mobile home parks, and it, it intrigued me enough to like you know you dive into that niche and learn a little more about it, and ultimately that was. Um, aside from a uh a, a small multifamily property I bought, but that was you know, that first mobile home park was really the first real property, like larger property that I purchased. Um, you know after you know the start of the great recessionary period. So again, after that three and a half year stint, um, that was really the first larger property I purchased, and um, again, it, it went incredibly well, and it was really the the foundation that you know really pushed us to you know build a company out of the mobile home park space. Mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and actually when I first you know knew that you were coming on the show my thought was that mobile home parks was going to be like the center point of discussion but (laughs) i don't know anybody who's doing this parking lot parking garage thing and i've always been fascinated by that so before we go to mobile homes wonder if we can talk about that just to make sure we cover it and i can understand as much as i can because i've heard other people uh in the re tipster audience ask about this too so yeah tell me about this parking lot thing like is it parking lots or, or structures? Both. And like, where do you get them? How do, how do you get them? How, just tell me everything about it.
1: Yeah, no, it's both. And, uh, you know, again, just, just like mobile home parks, it wasn't a, an asset class that was ever really on my radar. And, um, as you would mentioned at the beginning of the show, I I have a, a commercial real estate podcast. I've been doing it for eight and a half years now, and and a lot of the guests I have on are fairly traditional in nature. You know, uh, they they speak to multifamily or self storage or office or retail or industrial or you know one of the major food groups or even mobile home parks. And but I always really I've I've, I've always been very intrigued by niche you know you know, um, you know unique niches, and so I've had a go gone out of my way to find those that are um in these unique niches. One of them being. Parking lots, and uh, happened to have a guy on the show. You know, it's been roughly four years, maybe four and a half years. Um, I interviewed a guy that he was a broker. Uh, he owned some stuff as well, so he owned a number of parking lots. Uh, but he was a, uh, you know, a broker. And there's only literally a handful of brokers that specialize in this industry. There's there's roughly forty five thousand parking lots or structures throughout the country, um, but it's such a fragmented niche. That there, there literally is less than a handful of brokers that actually specialize in that in that industry, and so I interviewed him on the show, and I was intrigued by the business. I didn't know much about it, um, and I just asked a lot of questions, and I. Uh, you know i saw a lot of similar similarities to that of mobile home parks you know mobile home parks prior to where they are today were very mom and poppy you know they're very fragmented a lot of mobile home park owners only owned one they were you know older and older in the years they were aging out of these assets they might not have had an estate plan in place or um, you know, just I saw a lot of similarities to where I love fragmented niches. I love niches that haven't been consolidated yet by large institutional players. Mobile home parks is well on its way there now. Lots of institutional capital has been pouring into the space, and so parking lots seemed like a uh, a new avenue that wasn't highly competitive, that was very fragmented, that we could uh, ultimately buy cash flowing covered land plays in strategic, you know, phenomenal locations, um, knowing that. In its present state of a parking lot, let's just speak to a parking lot. In its present state of a parking lot, there would never be a time where it has a lesser value than that of just an asphalt parking lot, right? And it, the locations we're buying in will inevitably be a redevelopment at some point in time. We don't we don't pay for the re, we, we don't put you know we don't pay for the the future value of it being a redevelopment. We pay for what it's actually making today as a paid parking lot, knowing that inevitably there will be future upside, whether it's five years, ten years, fifteen years, what have you. It will have a higher and better use of something else, and so. Um, Another you know common theme when we kind of compared apples to apples, mobile home parks to parking lots is that we saw that in the mobile home park space lots of antiquated operations uh, were in place with these old mom and pops i mean they didn't have they were still keeping handwritten ledgers you know they didn't have the ability for residents to um, have auto pay or pay with a credit card or ach um, they just didn't run a tight ship they they didn't utilize technology or leverage technology to their benefit. And there's still a lot of parking lots in this country that are run just that way. They've got parking lot attendants in place that collect, you know, cash. Half that cash probably doesn't make it to the owner's hands. Um, you know, depending where the parking lot is, there's different demand drivers, whether it be entertainment venues or sports arenas or courthouses, and there's different peak peak hours right? where one can charge more for parking than other times. And so these mom and pops would just say, "Well, it's three bucks an hour no matter what," whereas you know, more advanced technology allows someone to institute dynamic pricing to where on the 4th of July, well, it's $35, you know, for four hours or for the day, whereas other times it's $2 an hour, right in the low times and just adjust it so that you can, um, uh, you know, garner as much of that revenue as possible. And so, there's lots of opportunities like that that we have found in the parking sector that have major inefficiencies that we can ultimately come in and not necessarily us take over the operations but find a better operator uh there's 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 not a shortage of operators across the country that manage and have a business of managing parking assets um and so a lot of those are fairly advanced with technology a lot of them are not and so there's there's an opportunity for us to go find the best management company to step in Leveraging their technology and realizing the upside potential of that particular lot. So, just I'm not gonna. I'll stop rambling right there. If you have any clarifying questions, but it's just it's an attractive space for us to, um, you know, to to basically have a value add play. But again, in the long term, it's a cash flow and covered land play and and some very uh, what, what we seem to be irreplaceable locations. You know, main and main locations that. They're not making anymore right it's not in the outskirt of town it's like it's in downtown or it's in a, a beach location uh, most recent asset we purchased was in clearwater beach here in our, in our backyard irreplaceable location there's a moratorium of parking it can never be built again and we literally purchased the most recent built you know parking deck 700 spaces um, built six years ago and the city will not allow new parking to be built and they won't allow new hotels that are being built to build excess parking so um, everything that 's getting redeveloped right now they 're basically taking waste surface lots, redeveloping hotels and condos, and which is creating an additional shortage of parking so the the demand is forever increasing on on the assets that we 're buying
0: Now, I have a ton of questions about this, so, so a lot of my questions are going to be pretty basic let 's dive in <laughs> but but it's it 's mostly just because like i don 't understand it, and I would love to understand it better so yeah, question number one, and I guess it's sort of two questions in one, but my first question was. Where do you find these deals? And it sounds like they come through a specialized broker. So, in that case, where do you find this specialized broker if there's not that many out there? Yeah, like how, how do you
1: do a Google search for these people? That's a great question. In fact, we have not bought any deals through a broker at present time. The one guy I mentioned, he's not even in He's not in the business anymore. So now it's down to probably four brokers in the industry, right? But uh, we've looked at some deals through brokers. Well, how did you find the deals then? What? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. And so. You know first and foremost, we always start with the market right um you know market is everything you know location's everything and so we we've kind of identified markets across the country that we would like to own um assets in and uh, the whole objective with parking is to actually find a market that's on a growth trajectory so most of these aren't like primary markets most of them are secondary and, and tertiary markets but in 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 the you know uh in, in a growth path um so like buying a a, a surface lot in downtown Atlanta. That is worth more today as a paid parking lot than that of a redevelopment probably doesn't exist because uh, the developer at that point becomes your competition and a lot of times them redeveloping it into a you know 500 unit you know uh, multi family tower they're willing to pay more than that of what it's worth as a cash flowing parking lot and so the the objective is to find growth markets that uh, to where the value the redevelopment value hasn't yet exceeded that of a uh, from an income valuation on, on the parking asset and so that that's tough to do but there's plenty out there. I mean, there's, there's a hundred markets at least where that exists, good markets to be in. And so we've identified the markets that we want to be in. And, you know, we, we basically go to county records and we, we dig, you know, we've got a team that digs in and identifies the lots, the owners uh, reach out to them, cold call, direct mail. Um That, that's. That's uh, pr- uh, produced results and uh, deals, but not as much as I'd say that the number one way that we have found uh, good opportunities is building relationships with these different management companies and operators. So these are groups that that's all they do is they manage parking across some of them are local, some are regional, and some are national. You know, there's some fairly small groups and there's some publicly traded big groups, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of parking operators throughout the country. And what we found is that the majority of them don't own. Parking assets. They just manage them. Like that is their business is they manage parking. And so Building relationships with these different parking groups that literally they are boots in the ground. They know if it's a lot that they manage, they know what it's doing. They know what it's capable of. Um, they also want to maintain that management agreement. So, our, our pitch to them is basically, you know, make us aware if this thing is up for sale or could be for sale, and, you know, we'll work with you to continue the management of it. Or if there's another lot that maybe one of your competitors is managing and you know it's a phenomenal lot, you know, they're mismanaging it and that you could do a way better job. Tell me where that is in that part of town because it's your boots on the ground. It's hard for me to determine what's the best corner of town to be in. And we'll reach out to those owners and we'll try to strike a deal. If we do, we'll give you first right of refusal. And so, you know, just getting referrals from, you know, from these different parking operators, the garage I just mentioned to you is a $34 million deal. It was a big deal. The guy that referred me to it was a parking operator that had, he did not have the management contract on that deal. He's been trying to get it for years and he made me aware of the potential sale um, and and ultimately we put it together and I gave him the first right of refusal to put an offer in to, to manage it for us and uh, and he won the bid and so he got what he wanted, which is a you know fairly significant parking asset to to uh, to manage and uh, we got what we wanted which is a which is a really good deal so that's that's where the best deals are found you know is relationships uh, so. so so could you just Google like parking lot management company yeah to find these companies Absolutely. Gotcha. It's that simple. Yeah. And any city that you live in, I mean, if you live in any decent size uh, city, just type in, you know, parking management and your Google maps will probably pull up a uh, parking lots in your area. And you know, actually a lot of times the, the management company is the, the name that's on that lot, you know, and there's a, just a, a large number, there's hundreds of them across the country.
0: What exactly is there to
1: manage? Like parking lots are pretty simple, right? Is it just like the kiosk or something or? No, no, actually not. Yeah. There's actually, there's, it, de- it depends what type of parking lot it is. Um, you know, if it's in a downtown location, Are
0: these like big parking ramps, like five store, like, is that what we're talking about? Or is it just a one layer parking lot?
1: Well, it could be a surface lot, which is, you know, maybe 50 parking spaces. It could be a, again, you know, speaking to the, uh, the parking garage, uh, that we have in clear beach it's 702 spaces on seven floors. And so it's a fairly substantial in size. Um, it does have like a, you know, an automated, you know, you go and you get a ticket, you got a gate goes up, you go park, come down, but you know, um, a good parking operator stays in the loop of um, of all the events happening in the area, when they're happening. You know what events are going to drive demand. They know when the times of day are, uh, when the demand's coming. Um, they can staff up a little bit and have a couple additional people there helping direct traffic and get people parked more efficiently. So there's not a backlog of people coming in. Um, yeah, so like th- th- there is actually a lot um, that they do. But in addition to that, uh, one of the other big benefits is that you know these parking operators, if they manage other assets in that area, they also know what other businesses have a demand for parking where their customers have need parking, or uh, maybe their, their, their employees need parking and they'll go negotiate uh, with these various businesses to, for monthly parking passes or quarterly parking passes. And they just, they're on the ball, like they're uh, ingrained in that marketplace. And so you, you could definitely do it yourself. Um, you know, we could, if we wanted to build a management infrastructure to do that, we surely could, but you know, it's not the most efficient use of our time. So our, our, you know, our kind of stick is finding the deal that has the opportunity upside and ultimately getting that management company to help us realize that upside with their technology. So we're buying it right on the front end. Um, If we were already buying it to where it was fully maximized, then we'd probably, it'd probably a hard, uh, you know, hard argument for us to actually buy like the asset we have there in Clearwater beach. Like if, if we were to be the buyer today, we actually, we, we wouldn't be the ideal buyer for because there's really no upside left. These guys have helped us extract all the upside. It's a win for them. It's a win for us. But um, we wouldn't be the buyers at present time because they've basically, they've done a better job than than we would ever be able to do managing ourselves and uh, have maximized that value. So Thanks for
0: clarifying that because I I mean, you're right. I can totally see the complexity behind this that I didn't even think about, but understanding events and that kind of stuff. So is there like a kiosk?
1: And you got parking enforcement, things like that too. So even parking enforcement, like maybe not necessarily in a garage, but like just, you got people that try to, you know, creep into your parking lot, you know, if you have a service parking lot, depending on what kind of equipment you have. If you don't have, like a lot of of service lots don't have the arms, right? They just have go in, they have got a kiosk somewhere in the corner you put your credit card in, but some people try to skirt that system, right? So you have to have, um, you know, the infrastructure in place to have, you know, parking enforcement, you know, someone going around and actually checking on cars and make sure that people aren't stealing parking from you. And um, just a litany of factors that that, that a management company does. Again, that, that's their business. That's what they do 24-7. Um, there's many owners that actually have built their own, just like in any other asset class that have built their own internal uh, management infrastructure. But um, again, we're really good at finding the opportunities to have a lot of meat in the bone and, um, you know, allowing them to have some of that meat Works well for us to where they can maximize the value and in, in turn we get a great return on our investment. We don't have to necessarily build it out internally.
0: What percentage do you have to pay these management companies of your
1: gross revenue? yeah, there's different types of agreements um you know there's revenue share agreements uh, some of them have kind of uh, waterfall thresholds once they her- hit a certain amount of revenue. they might get some type of performance um, bonuses above that. Some are just flat percentages. they get you know ten percent of overall gross revenues. Um, and then there's also leases, you know, we're actually a huge proponent of the lease deal. Um, in fact, all the lots that we own at present time and garages, um, we actually enter into a triple net lease agreement, um, with the, with the operator. And so that really makes it hands off on us. Um, you know, the only thing that we really have to asset manage is they're responsible for the repairs and maintenance. And we try to outline a, a schedule over a five and 10 year span, depending on what the, what the, um, the lease states. We try to outline a capex schedule for them so that they they're required to maintain it. But what we don't want them to do is hand us our asset back in ten years and and be in uh, you know major disrepair. Um, and so the only thing we kind of keep an eye on is that they're abiding by that capex schedule, or that um, that if they you know if if something does need done, that they're actually addressing it. So we we write in the language that we are able to if if we identify something if they don't address it, we're able to do it, then we build them back for it. But that's really the only involvement we have is make sure that the condition. Of our asset is is preserved and maintained, but other than that, they handle property taxes, property insurance, um, and, uh, and, and, and you know, any repairs and maintenance that exist in that property. So that's our preferred method is the is the lease.
0: Well, that's fascinating. So it sounds like uh, if you go the triple net lease route, like. Your bottom line is probably the same as what it would be otherwise, but the benefit is it's kind of hands off because everything is in their hand.
1: Well, it's right, or, or am I wrong? It depends. Actually, normally you might you might make a little bit less on the lease um, from our side, uh, but it, again, buying it right, the numbers work for us with the lease, and um, and for us it's a it offers clarity and security for our investors. Um, You know, with a management agreement in place or some type of revenue share, you've got to be a little bit more heavy on the on the asset management side of it. You know, more managing the manager, just like you you might do with multifamily. You got to be you got to have someone on your team that's much more involved, Um, and that might allow you to uh, you know to 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 participate in some additional upside that you might not have gotten with that lease. Because really, the upside on a lease deal. That's the operator. Like they're taking the risk of writing a lease with you. And so whatever upside above that lease, that flat lease amount, like that's theirs. That's rightfully theirs, right? And so they're going to work as hard as possible to achieve that upside. Whereas you might have to push a management company if you're just on like a management agreement. You might have to push them a lot harder to actually be able to achieve that upside. And there might be more of that for you, but you're going to have to work harder to actually obtain that upside. And so and it might not work out with one management company, so you got to go find another one. And so again, there's there's pros and cons of both side uh, sides of it, but for us, it was a you know look what is the most simplistic way that we can um, purchase high quality assets that produce a great return um, without having to build out a complete um, infrastructure internally um, to, to to help manage and, and asset manage these uh, these parking lots and parking garages and the triple a lease is the way to go. So again, it all but it's all about buying it right. It's all about buying it right on the front
0: end. Yeah. Now. Nope. With these management companies, I mean, my only experience with management companies is, uh, you know, multifamily, residential. And I just know there's a, a wide range in the quality, at least in my market. Most of them were like, eh, not that good. Found a couple that were pretty decent. When it comes to this type of management comp- company, I mean, it's just a totally different type of asset and everything. Are they all pretty good or some of them terrible? Like how do you vet out which ones are going to be a good fit? Same thing. Same thing. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's something, some, some some are terrible and antiquated and literally they have not, Again, a lot of these—it's op- it's, created some of these places are still in business. They've been around for fifty years, and they literally haven't—they still haven't adopted like technology, right? Like, I've—I've you know, I've seen parking lots that are managed by a management company, a professional management company. And they don't even accept credit cards. It's like, what? what where are you? It's <laughs> crazy. I mean, like, I don't even carry cash around with me, so I wouldn't be able to park there because all I have is a credit card most of the time, you know. And so, um, so yeah, it's—it's it's a wide spectrum of you know, really just uh, you, know, uh, you know, low quality operators to some that are. You know, incredibly advanced, leveraging every bit of technology, um, geotargeting. You know, to advertise parking spaces, dynamic pricing models to you know re- you'll capture you know the you know, the peaks and valleys of demand times, and I mean, just yeah. So there's many that do it way better than the others, and finding the right one is really just putting out an RFP. I mean, when we get when we have a property in contract, we'll put on the RFP to the. You know the whatever we feel are the the top three or five in the in the market and um and see you know what their expertise is how many other lots are they managing in the area and you can get a really good feel just from that alone like what else are they managing there how long they've been in that marketplace. Who's their regional in that area? Like, you know, how much experience do they have in that local marketplace, um, and how in tune are they with the local events and things of that nature? And, um, and again, who's willing to actually give the highest lease amount as well? Like, that's another big part of it.
0: When you say RFP, what is that? Request for proposal. Ah, gotcha. Okay. You mentioned like the importance of buying it right. I mean, that's you know, kind of goes without saying. I, I'm curious, like, how do you know you're buying it right? Like, does, does the process work when you find one of these interested sellers? It's a similar thing that you would normally do if you were buying an apartment building or a storage facility where you're trying to figure out what's the unit mix what's the rent roll like tell me how much you make like you get all that information and then you make an offer based on that and that's how you determine that you're making the right kind of offer or
1: yeah I mean obviously a lot of it has to do with comps as well like we, we get a general idea of how it's performing today you know how many how many parkers they have on a, on a monthly basis um, you know what's the average ticket price of that individual that's parking and then look at the comps in the area again, just using this uh, garage as an example that we just recently purchased I mean it was it had many different value add aspects to it, but just one that was you know glaring you right in the face was um, uh, this garage uh, it was it's the newest parking asset in all of Clearwater beach and there's only like two other parking garages on this entire beach and this one was it was a partnership between the city of Clearwater and a uh, private developer they built it together six years ago and you know, the city is just a bad bu- Most cities are just bad at business and they make poor decisions. And, um, you know, the same thing here. And, you know, nothing was new. They were only charging $3 an hour. Um, and every other parking garage on the beach, at minimum, and this is just a normal hourly rate, was 5 or $6 an hour. And they made no adjustments on high demand times, and the public access to the beach literally is a it's less than a block away to to you know, the prime public beach area, and they never made made adjustments for you know peak times, you know Memorial Day weekend, Labor Day weekend, Fourth of July, or any other special events, and so just those two things alone, I saw a ton of money being left on the table, and so if we could buy it, even if we paid a premium on actuals. I know that the demand, you know, the the demand for parking is inelastic. I mean, like it's 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 there. It's not going anywhere. If someone drives all the way down the beach, and they deal with traffic all the way to get there. And I know, number one, there's not many parking spaces available. Number two, someone's if it's three dollars an hour, or now if it's six, and they just waited forty five minutes or an hour across the bridge to get into the beach area, they're parking there. If it's six dollars an hour, it doesn't really make a difference. They're they're going to park there one way or another, especially if they got screaming kids in the back. And so. I knew um, very comfortably that we could literally double the bottom line revenue without doing anything other than just raising the the minimum rate to what the market was. That was it. I mean, that was simple as that. And there, there's other value-add factors as well, but just that alone... Um, was what we saw as an opportunity. So again, just like you look at a multifamily property, you look at two class B assets. One is at $900 a month for, you know, it's at $1.50 a square foot for rent and literally the same quality a block away. They're only at $1.23 a square foot rent. Well, it's like, okay. And both of them are 98% occupied. It's like, that's pretty easy. You know, if if each one are similar in, in quality, I know that this one I could easily just raise rents and I probably don't have to do that many repairs to or improvements. And I'm probably going to be able to capture that top of the market without doing much other than that. So
0: yeah. Have you ever built a new uh, like parking ramp? No. Or are you always just buying existing ones?
1: No, I just, you know, there, I think there's enough opportunity to buy existing ones. Um, and um, you know, just, uh, we haven't seen the need, uh, and, and in addition, a lot of municipalities don't like parking. They 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 don't like um, you know, so a lot of the surface lots that we own or that we look at. Uh, most of them have been surface lots for many years. A lot of municipalities wouldn't even like if you had a vacant piece of land in a downtown. It'd be a very it'd be a very tough um, go to actually get it converted to a paid parking lot. And so they they, they kind of think of parking lots as uh, I guess similar to that of what a mobile home park is like. It's like an eyesore, right? Like it's not attractive. Yeah of see that yeah it's got a ta- it's got some you know tax revenue opportunity, but like it's just it's not a beautiful brand new you know piece of architecture that that's uh you know going to shine on downtown. It's basically full of cars that are parked at all different angles and you know it's not pretty looking right <laughs> yeah no okay I got you. so um so so we we feel that it's better just to buy existing than try to go down that that you know that 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 risky path of taking something that's no, not a parking lot at present and uh and turning it into one.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think of, uh, like, if a person ever did want to go down that road, how would they know that it's a good? Like, do you get a feasibility study for that kind of thing? Or yeah, there's
1: consultants in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. For for example, we're looking at a, at a. I'm not going to say the city that it's in, but it's a, it's a major market in the country, and there's a parking lot that it's not technically for sale, but it's for sale, and. um and it's uh it's got a multiple demand drivers it's in an entertainment district there's um a minor league baseball team literally a block away there's um the civic centers you know literally across the street i mean anyway there's lots of demand drivers at all times of day and you know 24/7 basically and <clears throat> they're they're priced a little high on it on, on the lot at least from a um per you know per foot basis of of raw land like from an inv- a revenue standpoint from an income standpoint it's still overpriced a little bit but when you compare it to other, you know, there's a couple other vacant parcels in the immediate vicinity. Um, it's way overpriced from a price per foot from a redevelopment uh, standpoint. And so if you bought it from an income standpoint, you know, it would be a lo- probably a long time before it ever. Uh, was had a higher and better use of a redevelopment if if, if you paid you know for it from an income perspective and so but there's another lot right around the corner literally it's a little bit bigger even um but it's currently just raw land sorry got entitlements in place for like a mixed use development with a hotel and some multifamily and a few other things and it's priced right now at 70 bucks a foot and but it's raw land and so we've been in some conversations uh you know to see number one if there's even a if the viable strategy of us actually putting a surface lot in you know um for the time being. And, uh, cause, cause we, we can make the numbers. I know there's enough demand just given how full this other lot is on, on a regular basis that we could, we could definitely, um, pull some of that demand over to our lot. And we'd be, you know, our basis would be you know less than half of what we'd be buying this other one at. And so, but I I think it's going to be an uphill battle to, to have them approve that. Um, but if they, if they were receptive to that idea, I would bring a consultant in and we'd really get down the brass tacks on, um, you know, how much of that demand would we be able to pull over from that lot to this lot if we were going to, you know, go in and build it? So, but uh, there's plenty of consultants in the industry. Um, we we typically get a consultant involved every time we buy an asset or have one under contract. Um, you know, someone that's been in the industry for thirty plus years that has a wealth of knowledge. Um, it's a very tight knit um, uh, industry where everyone knows each other, and so relationships go a long way. And so, yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it's lots of value there from a consultant standpoint.
0: Seems like it would be. I was in Chicago uh, about a month ago, and I've noticed this even in my hometown of Grand Rapids. That a lot of newer parking ramps are like part of a building. It's like the first several floors of the building, and then the building is on top of that. That kind of thing. In those cases, does that mean that the development owns the parking ramp? Like you
1: couldn't buy just that part of the building, right? It depends on how the how the deed was uh, w- was formed. Uh, I've seen I've seen both. I've seen where the built it's all in one. And then I've seen where literally you know, the the garage itself is its own its, its own asset. I mean, its own uh, deed uh, to to the building. And so a lot of times there's there's some there's some congruency there to where if someone were to buy the garage, like they have to you know allocate a you know certain number of, of spaces to the office and you know this that and the other because obviously the office wouldn't be able to house their employees uh, if if they didn't have dedicated parking spaces. But no, it's it's um it's both uh, it, it's both and so. Uh, I don't know if we would have an interest in something like that. Uh and, and the main reason being is that like you you don't have as much control over your destiny. And so again, just I like to revert back to this this parking garage we, we bought in Clearwater Beach is it's twelve thousand square feet of retail on the first floor, and then there's seven stories of parking. It's but we own the entire footprint. It's literally um I think it's uh it's like an acre, acre and a half um of prime real estate. We own an entire footprint, the entire thing. So in ten, fifteen, twenty years, if 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 there was a much higher and better use for that parcel of land um, than that of, of for a parking deck, then we would be in full control over actually what happened with the, with the garage and the land. Whereas you know w- w- if you didn't know the actual structure above, now you're kind of in a precarious situation. So that's at least that's kind of how we feel about it. We like to be in control of the destiny.
0: So so you own the retail space as well, like literally the entire thing. That's correct. Okay, gotcha.
1: And we're not retail guys, but the re- the retail was pretty easy to. I mean, it was such a small allocation of the overall deal, and it's all triple net leases. I mean, really high quality tenants. So it was kind of a it was it was an easy decision to make based on the location and the quality of the tenants, and again, just the knowing that that allowed us to own the entire asset from from top to bottom. Do you have any idea what the
0: cost is to build a new parking ramp versus buying an ex- existing one, like a cost per square foot or per parking space or anything like that?
1: That's a great question. They normally, they normally, um, they normally based on a price per parking space or parking stall is what they call it. And then obviously, you know what it might cost to build in a cold environment like you know St. Paul or Minneapolis, you know where you know you've got a lot of uh, um, expansion and contraction due to the variations in temperature. You know, you got salt that's going to be coming off cars like it's going to be a much different construction there and probably more costly construction than that of a, you know, call it a dry environment like Phoenix, Arizona, right. Where no moisture, hardly any moisture at all. Um, not as much deterioration with rebar and concrete and things of that nature. But I don't know the answer to your question. I've seen a range. Obviously there's lots of variables as well with construction costs nowadays and cost of material, but I've seen a range anywhere from like the mid twenties to, you know, to the, to the mid to high forties, uh, 40,000, you know, a space. So, I think it's just, it's all dependent. You know, there's a wide swing there. Yeah.
0: I used to, in my old job, uh, there was somebody on the board of our company who worked for the city of Grand Rapids. And he said that he had uh, dealt with some parking ramps in the past. And this was like 15 years ago. He was saying that it was like 25,000 bucks per space to do these things. I'm sure it's way more than that now, but but he was saying that they they would have to get like 50 year mortgages on these things to amortize them and, and make the cash flow work. Wow. And I didn't know that was a thing. But anyway, uh, maybe it's a maybe it's a different thing depending on what type of structure and how complex it is or something, but uh it sounded very expensive.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's it's definitely not cheap. It's definitely not cheap.
0: Mhm. Gotcha. So how could a deal like this go sideways? Like, I'm trying to think of, uh, how could you make a mistake, maybe buy a property or maybe even make the right decision, but then something bad happens that ruins it? Like, either, uh, competing parking ramp is built. This doesn't sound like that's a terribly common thing. Or maybe like the local economy tanks and people move away and all of a sudden people don't need to park there anymore. Like, are those kind of the two main things that would uh, impact it, or anything else that could yeah
1: get you? No, that's that's a it's a really good question. You know, um, you hit on a couple that are that, that could be a big risk. Like, you know, if you if you're purchasing a, a parking lot, I'll give you a perfect example of a lot we did not buy it was in uh, st louis and um it was right literally right next to adjacent to the children's museum which is a major attraction in downtown st louis like a major major attraction probably one of the most popular tourist destinations in all of downtown st louis but 88% of the um of the parking demand for this lot was a direct uh, result of the Children's Museum, and so the only you know twelve percent made up the transient amount. Um, which you know, one was from like a, a boutique hotel right around the corner, and the other I, I forget. Just um, there's some other there's like a smaller shopping district there, but um, but the majority of it from that Children's Museum. Well, the Children's Museum's been around for quite some time. You know, it was just purchased by a new group like a year and a half ago. Um, a, a big group, actually. I, I think it's the group that owns Bush Gardens. I forget the name of their holding company. But anyway, so like, it's got a lot of money behind it, but that doesn't mean that it can't fail. That doesn't mean that there's not risk associated with it potentially failing. And so, um, you know, with that being said, that was one of the big red flags for us is that like literally all your eggs are literally in that one basket. If something happens with that children's museum, which again, don't foresee that happening, but. You know, during hard economic times, are people going to go pay, you know, whatever it is, thirty dollars entry fee for each kid to go to this children's museum? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Right? How bad times get, what people are going to decide against doing with their kids as far as recreation. So that was a big one, a big red flag on that deal that that you know scared us enough to you know move us away from that deal. But another piece of it was in that part of downtown St. Louis. You know, we just went through one of the biggest economic booms that we 've seen for you know for for decades and um there wasn't a lot of cranes in the air. Like, it's just, it's not a, it's a part of town where, like, there's, there's a lot of redevelopment happening on like old buildings. Like, people are turning these old, like, you know, old, old industrial buildings into like lofts or things like that. I mean, there's that going on, but it, I wouldn't say that it's a booming part of St. Louis in general. It's just not a, it's a good linear market, but it's not a booming economy. Like, there's not multiple, you know, multifamily high rises being built downtown. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's not that type of city. And so if something were to happen with parking, you know, what is a plan B? And if plan B, if it doesn't look like there's a lot of uh, economic development happening in downtown, then what the hell are we going to do with the surface lot then? Like it's at that point in time, it becomes not a worthless piece of asphalt, but definitely not probably anywhere near what we had paid for. Right. And so th- that's a huge risk to us. Like, there's got to be multiple demand drivers. Like, for example, if it's only like, courthouses don't move that often, but you know, I would want more than just a, uh, you know, just the courthouse being the demand. Drive. I would want to know that, okay, the courthouse is here. And so, uh, but also there's, you know, within two blocks, there's a, a stadium of some sort or a music venue, or um, th- there's a number of other factors that are going to, in, in the event COVID happens and they shut down the courthouse or now they go to virtual trials or whatever. And, uh, you know, but the ball game's still going to happen because it's outside, right? Like, w- w- what will offset, you know, the lack of of demand from the courthouse in, in that temporary moment and help make it up on the other side? And so, you want to know that there's multiple demand drivers there. That's really interesting. I appreciate you sharing all this. This is just like light bulbs going off. It's making total sense. But we looked at some stuff in Memphis. I'm not a big fan of Memphis. Nothing against Memphis, but we looked at some some surface lots in Memphis about a year and a half ago um, that were uh, again courthouse. Like they they were. Ninety-nine percent of the revenue was from the courthouse, and um, you know uh, the you know one, a couple of the courthouses opened back up. I, f- I forget maybe civil opened back up, but then like this one, you know, it, it had about forty percent of the traffic from from the from the civil courts. But there was a a separate building that was where all the divorces happened, all the divorce courts. So almost all the other courts had opened back up, but they literally had not gone back in session. Um with the divorce courts, it was all zoom like all the all these hearings were being done via zoom and they had no they had no date set of when it was gonna um come back in person if ever and so Lou that lot suffered a basically a fifty fifty percent reduction of revenue um with no no foreseeable future when that's when and if that's going to actually come back, you know, if they decide like, hey, well, let's just let's sell this building off where we used to do divorce courts in, and seems like they're going well via Zoom virtually. Let's just stick with that pattern. It saves a lot of money. Get one of these old buildings off our books, and uh, let's you know that, that's a new way. So, I don't want that risk. Makes <laughs> total sense. And no one's redeveloping downtown Memphis right now, at least near the courthouse. No one that that lot's never going to be worth. Anytime in the near future, I don't know if you've ever been to downtown Memphis, near the courthouse. It's not a nice part of town at all. Maybe in our lifetime something positive will happen there, but it's it's right on the edge of like some projects. I mean, like it's just there's not going to be a plan B for that lot. It's literally just going to turn into a deteriorated lot with potholes and you know whatever else happens there.
0: Was the pandemic pretty hard on this industry, just with people not needing to travel as much?
1: Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, obviously, every every market got impacted differently than others. I will tell you that, you know, Florida, um, surprising, I mean, not surprising, but it flourished. Um, you know, this garage uh, we bought it during the pandemic. It saw it saw a couple dips, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic for. For about uh, probably about two and a half months, um, it definitely saw a dip, and then it you know uh, you know picked right back up again, and actually saw some record numbers. And then um, there was a, I forget like the second resurgence, like the following year, where you know kind of they, they did like they did like one more lockdown. Florida did like a very short period; they did like a week or two lockdown, and then it opened back up again. And then everyone and their brother wanted to go to Florida. And So like Florida, that that anything beach located or coastal located in Florida or any any of the other markets that um that that were a little more lenient with the uh, covid restrictions they might have they saw some hiccups they had some challenges but um they did just they did just fine you know the ones that saw the that suffered the most were you know in downtown scenarios where you know the lot was servicing the majority an office building or a few office buildings right like th- th- those are still suffering today um i've seen a number of parking garages come on the market that you know, predominantly, um, serviced, you know, large tower office towers. And, um, I don't know what, the, I don't know. No one knows what the future holds for those. Cause no one knows how many people are going to come back into the workplace. How many people are going to renew their leases of the existing leases that are in place of these large towers. And uh, anyway, just, it, there's so much uncertainty there. Um, and, and no one knows what that looks like five years from now. So those are still, th- those are still having a lot of pain.
0: Yeah. I, Would you ever buy one of those? Like what, what would the price need to be for you to feel comfortable with that?
1: No, I mean, unless there was absolute clarity as to exactly um, what the future holds, but no, because the thing is like on a large, you know, parking structure, if you're not, I mean, the the capital expenditures will have your lunch. You know what I mean? If, I mean, just this, the ongoing upkeep and maintenance. And so like, it's not a matter of like, what, I mean, I've seen, I saw a garage literally in, in downtown, um, uh, Minneapolis, uh, and I forget the exact location, but um it was it was a it was only built like eighteen years ago. Um it was attached to a tower, it was across from the bus station. And uh ended up going, I mean it was, it, at present, it, this is like seven or eight months ago, it was only doing like twenty-five percent of the of the you know revenues that it had done prior to COVID. Obviously, you know, that that market had some very strict um COVID uh, COVID restrictions. A lot of the major employers that are based there still haven't come back to a, you know to the workplace. And um, this thing was, uh, it was. I think I ended up selling for like like four million dollars uh, through all. I mean, like, and it, it was probably it probably cost them thirty million to build. And even at that number. You're losing. You you would be losing money every month just due to the, um, you know, the the upkeep and maintenance. I mean, you'd be able to cover your debt service, but the upkeep and maintenance on that facility—number one, it's been deferred, and it has. You know, you've got ice and salt and snow and all that stuff to deal with. Um, I mean, you're looking at like five, six hundred thousand dollars a year just upkeep of that property, and and if you don't have a clear path um, of rebound to you know pre-COVID or near pre-COVID levels, then you literally be dying on the vine with just a big paperweight. Basically, is what it comes down to, um, unless you had the plan to you know knock it down and redevelop. Which again, that's not really our mo to do that. So
0: it's a good segue into another question I had: is what kind of capex is there to work? Because when I think of like a big cement parking structure, it's like just a big rock, you know? Like like what what is it that breaks down? I, I assume you mentioned ice, salt, and snow. I'm sure you got gates. You got electricity. What are the kinds of expenses would be uh, weight on that?
1: Yeah, the gates and electricity, that, that's really not that big of a thing. I mean, those are fairly inexpensive mechanicals in the grand scheme. You know, a lot of it is um, just water water intrusion. You know, underneath that concrete is rebar. And so water intrusion from from the top deck down, right? Like Water finding its way into every crack and crevice. If it's not sealed and over time, that rebar rusts out. And after the rebar rusts out, the, the concrete cracks and falls off. I mean, so... Um, it, we just actually backed out of a garage in Providence, Rhode Island. We were in contract with, and I went up to visit it. And uh, you know, it's an older garage, but like just because it's older doesn't mean that uh, it has to be in horrific shape. And this thing had so much deferred maintenance um, that it, it would it would have cost us. Um, you know, we're under contract for roughly seventeen million. It would have cost us probably, just guessing because no one knows until you start pulling all that concrete off. But I mean, just visibly what we could see, it would have cost us nearly two million dollars to get it to like a what we felt was a safe baseline but that was there were still other areas that you you would almost have to like continually band-aid every year every five years you'd have to band-aid and so it would have been roughly two million out of the gate to get a decent foundation to work from but then the the couple um structural engineers we we worked with one that was very familiar with the garage basically said like you need to set aside aside from normal reserves and repairs and maintenance probably another 200 to two hundred fifty thousand um, every year to handle these repairs that we deem to be five-year repairs, that there's not really a permanent fix for it at this point in time. Like we just got to basically keep on band-aiding it every five years. And I'm like, that sounds horrific. Like that, that's scary. You know, like that's, so, that is. but on the, on the flip side of that, I mean, that didn't have to be that way if they would have maintained it, you know, from the get go, they just, they took money out of it for 25 years a family that owned it and never really put it back in. Now they want to sell it. And now they've been trying to, you know, band-aid as fast as possible. And, uh, you know, it's made that money, but it would be a very risky endeavor for the next buyer in line, um, with with you know the uncertainty of of the future of uh, the structure itself. So, but then I've looked at uh, we looked at we've looked at assets, uh, parking garages. We just missed out on a bid in Phoenix, um, uh, a garage that was about forty, I think it's about forty years old. But Phoenix is inc- incredibly dry. You know, there's no humidity, and uh, this has been maintained. But also the you know the the dry climate doesn't and they don't get much rain there right and so there's not a lot of water intrusion or anything like that and so this one has stand the test of time way better than the one up in uh up in rhode island so um, the one in florida we've got you know salt air to contend with um you know salt air makes its way into everything over time you know and and so back to the you know, making sure that the concrete's sealed um so that it doesn't penetrate through that concrete wh- which is pervious and then get get its way to the rebar and then obviously you know what salt does the rebar and so yeah, but those are the big things. Like those are the biggest, like ongoing expenses associated with a garage structure. You know, all everything else is so minimal in nature. You know, lighting, electrical, plumbing. You know, elevators are another big piece, right? Like elevators, um, you've got to be upkept and you've got to have a maintenance program on them and things like that. But but then again, a good elevator that's been maintained will last 40 years. So, so long as you've got a professional company overseeing it and managing it for you. Wow.
0: So is is the property manager, are they the ones who keep an eye on all this maintenance stuff and make sure that it gets done? Like that's their job, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Do you have to police them and make sure that they're doing that or you just kind of trust them and-
1: We normally visit every quarter. Yeah, we'll visit once a quarter and just take a look at things. Um, if If it's a service lot, not so much because there's literally nothing that can really go wrong with the service lot. I mean- Really, outside of a pothole and they carry liability insurance on their side. So, um, you know, uh, what, what I've found is that potholes are very inexpensive to replace. So a lot of management companies, it's a detriment to them if they don't get that pothole fixed because someone might not park in that lot because of the pothole. So, um, and it's, it's impactful to their bottom line, which is, you know, creates urgency on their side to get it done. But outside of a, of a, of a pothole on the surface lot, there's literally nothing else that can really go wrong. I mean, it's just it's such minimal upkeep there.
0: And uh, the management company—do they typically install a kiosk for this, if there's not one there already, or is there a different, better way to?
1: Yeah, so if it's just a surface lot, yeah, they'll they'll put in like a um, uh, you know, if there's if there's power to that lot, a lot of times there's not, but there's power to that lot. They'll put in a hardwired you know kiosk, maybe a couple kiosks, depending on big the lot is, that you know accept credit cards. Um, you know, there's many different systems out there, but just generally speaking they accept credit cards and, um, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, lots as well. There's technology, uh, solar power technology where they can put a kiosk in that's, you know, basically powered by the sun and you don't have to have hard wire or anything. So it's very inexpensive, pour a little concrete pad bolted to that concrete pad and, um, you're off and running. So and they've, they've obviously got it tied to their merchant, uh, you know, their, their merchant account and, uh, yeah, I mean, at, at this point in 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 the world, I mean, you know, ninety five percent of transactions are done via credit card versus cash. In fact, most of these most of these um, systems don't even accept cash, and so like unless you have a credit card, then you're not parking. And so that, that's where the value add is, is. You see some old lots that are only accepting cash. It's like yeah, that's kind of crazy. We, we've kind of flipped the script a little bit. There's definitely way more people in their cars that don't have cash and only have credit versus those that have cash and don't have credit. Right. So, um. Yeah, you're missing out on a lot of opportunity if you're not accepting credit cards.
0: So are you saying that uh, a parking structure would not have a kiosk or do those have kiosks as well?
1: Well, it depends. A lot of them have, you know, there's different trains of thought here. Um, you talk to one opera, uh, one group, they'll say that you want to have a frictionless operation to where you don't want people to have to stop at a gate because during busy times, if there's a gate there, you know, you're know, you going to have some backup and traffic either coming in or leaving the facility Um, but then on the flip side of that, you'll have people say, Well, if you don't have a gate, you've got it frictionless, meaning that you've got maybe a kiosk on each floor, then you're going to have theft. I mean, like, unless you are incredible at the enforcement, which no one's 100%, like, you're going to have people stealing parking from you uh, because they're not going to have to actually stop at that gate. So I don't know what the right or wrong is. I could tell you that the garages that we have, uh, the operators, they use gate, you know, gated systems, advanced, but gated systems. And, um, I've seen others that don't use them and it's just uh, again, it's either a key fob that you have to go in if you're like a monthly Parker or um, I've seen other ones where they'll scan your license plate uh, when you go in um, and others where it's just like you go to park and it's kind of an honor system um, where there's a kiosk where you got to go put your license plate in and, you know, put that little parking ticket on your, on your dash. But um, you know, if their enforcement's good and then you're in there and you did not go pay, then you might end up with a ticket, but. So, How do people steal parking?
0: Every, I guess every parking lot. Well, like, do do they just ram right through the gate or something, or like they they break it?
1: They don't pay. I got you. What I mean is, if there's not a gate there, if it's a friction a frictionless uh, parking system is one that doesn't have a gate. So I mean, like they can drive right in, and um, it's up to them to go to the kiosk on the whatever you know area that they're parking and and you know make sure that they're paying for their parking. Um, if they don't do that, and there's not good enforcement, you can't enforce against everybody. Especially on a big lot, it's really hard to actually capture everybody. Because um, most of the time, if if you're if a management company is managing multiple lots in an the area, they might have one or two enforcement officers like you know, canvassing these lots, but they don't have someone there all the time, just managing uh, and ensuring that someone is paid on in that respective lot. So they don't always have eyes and ears there 24 7 you know it, it might be a couple hours to go by someone can get parking and it's it's yeah and then once someone you know people are creatures of habit especially those that are um a little above the law and so if they start you know if it's someone that goes to that that area often they start seeing trends of when the parking enforcement officer is typically coming by they know that they can go park there from 12 to 4 and uh, that person's not going to be by there and I don't have to pay for parking, you know? <laughs> they might never catch me. So it gets expensive if you're talking like a place that charges five bucks an hour, you know, they're stealing 20 bucks a day and they're coming a couple of days a week. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll eat into your bottom line pretty quickly.
0: If somebody did want to manage one of these themselves or they just want to understand what is my management company even doing? Uh, we've already covered several things to do. There's, you know, understanding peak times, there's uh, maintenance issues, keeping an eye on that, there's uh, uh, enforcement, making sure people have paid, all this stuff. Um, what, what other jobs are there that are required to manage one of these things in terms of just how difficult or time consuming it is?
1: Yeah. Really, really having a handle on like the, the events in the local area, you know, when the peak, what are the peak hours, you know, wh- wh- whatever you're serving, are you serving a courthouse, you're serving a baseball field, a football stadium, a music venue, um, whatever that might be, understanding special events when they're happening, <clears throat> you know, the, you know, the amount of people that are expected to come to that special event. Uh, is it going to be in walking proximity? Is it going to be a convenience proximity to your lot? You know, you're going to, are you going to be able to capture a hundred percent of those people, 80% of those people, depending on the location of your lot to to the venue. So just things like that, really having a firm handle on that local marketplace. And it's really hard to do um, unless you're very familiar boots on the ground. So that's why I like a lot of these professional operators. If they're already managing a lot of lots in an area, then they they know more than anyone could ever know that doesn't manage anything in that area, you know? Cause I mean, they're, they're already tied in. They've, they've seen, you know, uh, Aerosmith comes every year to the civic center. And like, we know what happens when they come. Like, you know, we know exactly how this lot fulfills that need for parking. We know how that lot does. And that lot does that one on the outskirt. they, they do good, but we have to lower the price five dollars uh, for the event versus the 15 that we charge, you know just a block away, because people want convenience, right? They'll pay for convenience. So understanding those dynamics is really tough to do unless you're very intimately familiar with that market, and, and that you know, just from block to block, there's a huge difference, right? Yeah huge difference. So on that whole kiosk thing,
0: if you have a kiosk and the kiosk breaks, what then? Like is everybody just screwed? Like, can people get out, or can they lift it manually or something? I've, i was always wondered. Well, yeah, m-
1: most of the garages, um, again, uh, you know, like the garage and here we can get back Clearwater Beach. You know, they got a gate, but they actually have. Uh, it's such a big garage and gets enough business where they literally have a full time. They have a person there um, most of the time. Like, there's a physical person there, uh, a lot attendant, not collecting money, but just you know helping if an elevator goes down or, you know, if the gate breaks or, you know, if there's a backup helping direct traffic and things like that. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it's, if you don't have that in place, I, you know, I'm sure that could create a, a massive challenge. Uh, you know, if you've only got one ingress and egress and one of those breaks uh, and there's no one around to help you, then normally there's a number that's, that they can call to actually get someone from the management company. But I mean, like, again, there's good managers and bad managers and I'm sure there's situations where, you know, that happens and there's no one around to help. <laughs> so, it'd be, you know, I, I'm sure that people are probably take it upon themselves. If you're the parker and you're stuck in there that you'd probably get out and at some point, lift the gate yourself, right. Or do something to, to get out of there. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh, maybe
0: one of the most important questions that I haven't asked yet, how much money can you make from these things? Like, are they super profitable compared to a mobile home park or storage facility? Like what would be the cap rate on something like this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all relative. I mean, again, you make kind of make your money on the front end on the buy, and so like, yeah, you know, I always like to say people every time I sell tell someone where we buy mobile home, watch they're like, oh, they're cash cows. I don't know, like that that old ad, like that. I don't know. That's kind of played itself out because like anything could be a cash cow if you buy it right. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> and if it's a good exactly. asset and it's a good market, it's got a good man. You buy it at the right price, absolutely can be a cash cow, or it could be a dog because you overpaid for it, right? And uh, so it's kind of the same thing with parking, you know. Um, you know, we, since we're value add investors, a lot of times we don't look at cap rates on the front end because we know what the value add component's going to be before we even buy it. You know, and we know how to execute on it. And so, you know, um, you know, we we might uh, for uh, you know we bought a surface lot up in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, it's a small little surface lot, and you know, based on historical revenues, we paid a and this is during the pandemic. We paid like a five cap, and the guy thought he like, he was winning huge, like the seller, he, old mom and pop running it. But I already knew ahead of time that I had a couple. I had an no operator in place, when to put a triple net lease in place that would have been effective, uh, just shy of a ten cap unlevered. And like I literally already had that in my back pocket because I'd done the research and I knew. And so while I bought it at a five cap, I immediately, you know, within a, within a month, uh, it was an unlevered ten cap, um, because we had a, a triple net lease ready to go uh, on that property. So you know, cap rate's kind of irrelevant on the front side. Um, unless it's a fully stabilized property. I mean, if there's absolutely no upside at all and you're buying a coupon clipper, then then cap rate and spread come into play a little bit more. But um, we don't necessarily spend too much time worrying about that. We really look at like what's not what it is today, but what's possible tomorrow and what's that effective yield on that stabilized asset once we execute that business plan.
0: Yeah. Do you ever buy these things to flip? like make the improvements and resell it or is it always
1: buy and hold or not yet no i mean it's, it's hard to find really good ones you know and in, in great locations and so um you know if we find a good asset in a phenomenal location and performs well you know we're, we're of the mind that it's really hard to ever replace that asset you know we i mean we've we've sold properties over the years we've sold a number of mobile home parks over the last three years which you know, that uh, wasn't necessarily the plan Maybe when we bought them, but, you know, times change, things happen, you know, some markets don't perform as expected, some perform better than others. And you're like, okay, well, we kind of had expectations for this property and it's like, you know, 3X those expectations. And we just got an offer that literally, if I look back and say, I would never pay that for that property in a million years. And I know everything about it, then we might consider selling it, right? So we don't never go in with the mindset of we're going to buy it to flip it, but, you know, everything's. For sale, I guess you could say, at the right price. You know, we we kind of leave it at that. Yeah,
0: I, I ask because a lot of the storage facility owners I know, like they're get in, get out. Like they want to flip the things, and uh, that always kind of struck me as like that's weird. Like I, I would want it's kind of a job.
1: Yeah, like I would want the
0: cash flow. You know, but uh, it sounds like you kind of think more like I do in that standpoint, maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, like at that that point, it's just, um, you know. Uh, it's become harder. There's been more competition and pretty much every asset class, self-storage, mobile home parks, all that I means. And so like when you find a great deal, that's got a lot of upside. Obviously we've, we've been in you know, rising tide lifts all boats. We've been in a, a booming economy where asset prices have continually risen for the past decade. And, you know, um, it, it's becoming harder and harder to find these assets that have a lot of value add component without having to pay for that value add. Cause there's a lot more competition to have capital. They're looking to, you know get a yield in their money. And, and so, you know, if that, that, if that's your, if that's your business model is just buying, adding value and flipping and moving on to the next, at, at some point I would I would think that, and maybe even it's happened, is that it's become more difficult for you to find the spreads on these deals and and make it worth your while. And so then you look back you're like, if I had just kept those 10 I sold and you know done some cash out refis along the way and um, repurposed that capital... I might not have to be even trying to find another one right now. I could probably just maybe go put my legs up and sit on the beach somewhere if I wanted to, and just low out the cash flow instead of having to try to find that that next pop, the next pop, right? And so, um, you know, we do both. I mean, we like holding assets a long time. You know, I've got some personal assets I've held for for you know uh, over a decade, and you know, uh, not saying I won't ever sell, but you know, just there's a time and place for everything. But you know, cash flow is. Um, it's critically important. At least for me, it depends on where you're at in your life as well. Like I've got young kids, and I love spending time with them. We have a lot of flexibility. We travel a lot together, and I know that th- those years will never get back. And so I've been trying to, you know, you know, emphasize spending as much time with the family as possible. Uh, I enjoy it, but also I would just I know that in five years I'll look back and be like, you know, I, even now I spent a lot of time. I, I wish I'd have spent more. And so the only thing that can allow you to really do that. Is getting some assets that produce ongoing cash flow and residual income. And um, if it's always finding the next deal, it doesn't lend as much flexibility, in, in my opinion. So that's just my opinion. And that's not worth much, but <laughs> no, I think
0: it's worth a lot. And I, I'm with you. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, now, I think you've already answered this question, but I just want to ask it one more time to clarify it or ask it a different way. So if there is a parking ramp or parking lot location that is just struggling like it's not getting much revenue people aren't parking there is there anything they can do to make that better or are they kind of just a slave to the location like if it's a bad location then like you're just kind of stuck
1: yeah i mean if it's a bad location again you, you can you can fix a troubled asset if it's mismanaged but what you can't fix is, is a location right you can't fix a market per se and um so I always like to say like I'd I'd much rather own a really rough asset that's not performing and a phenomenal market that's growing, it's got great demand, because I can fix the other problems. I can't you got a pretty asset. Again, that 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 St. Paul asset I was talking about that parking garage, like it's I mean, it's in downtown St. Paul. It is a pretty property, but I, I can't fix the challenges. I, I those challenges are directly correlated with. Uh, it was already struggling before COVID. You know there was that major vacancies in that office tower for whatever reason, and so until that gets fixed, and now COVID, no one knows if that's ever going to get fixed. And so I can't fix that. Uh, you know, it's not just a matter of bad management or anything like that. And so, um, it, you need to identify what the problems are. If you, and once you identify what the challenges are at the garage, then you can make a determination if, if they're fixable, right? Market, not so much. You know, you just can't fix the market. People are moving out of the area or moving away, and um, you can't force them to come back um and yeah. uh it no, makes total so, sense, yeah, I mean, but if it's just a bad bad management all day long all day long, yep
0: yeah because I know there's I've heard this saying before that anything is a deal at the right price, mm no, I don't agree with that yeah I was gonna say it doesn't sound like that is the Mm-mm. case unless they're literally paying you monthly to take this thing <laughs> but that's you know that's never gonna happen so
1: yeah I don't, yeah I, I I completely disagree with that um yeah if it's in a crappy crappy market so so if, if you can get a parking rent for free like if it was a just free I mean, again, this is a pretty extreme example, but I mean, look at the, uh, you know some of the really bad neighborhoods in Detroit, you know, coming out and I don't know if they're still doing it, but I know they had a program for many years where they were literally giving houses away for a penny. You know what I mean? Like, and they still couldn't give them away. It's like, I mean, yeah, like definitely. Yeah. I, I don't agree with that sentiment at all. <laughs> no, that's actually really
0: helpful. Cause I, th- that's, it's kind of one of these, uh, it's similar to the saying, do what you love and the money will follow, which I don't know if I agree with that either. Like it's, like there may be a seed of truth to it, but it's more than just that. It's not that black and white. Like it has to be monetizable, that kind of thing. So just this idea that like it.
1: Yeah. There's also, I, 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 yeah, I agree with that as well. And I, I've got another argument to that, that point, you know, you'll find what you love and, and, you know, the money will follow. And, and I see a lot of people that, you know, everyone's got different hobbies. Right. And um, I don't think it's a great idea to always, you know, find because you might love multiple things. Right. And, and, you know, when you start mixing what was what was a hobby and 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 a source of like you know um, uh, um you know relaxation for you or may, maybe it's relief stress maybe it's you know riding a bike or running or I don't know just picking some things that come to mind and then okay well I'm gonna turn it into a business now you've basically taken what was a joyful hobby of yours and now you've added uh, undue stress to it that ultimately you might find yourself in a situation where you actually don't enjoy that as much anymore because now you've, you've you've tied this you know business element to it and so. Um, you know, I love real estate. Um, and I, I love, I use cycling as an example. I love cycling. I do a lot of like road cycling and all that, but, um, I don't think I'd ever tie a business to it. Cause I don't think I would enjoy it as much at that point in time. Like, I don't, I don't want to go like do cycling races or, you know, sell bicycles or anything like that. I just, I'd rather ride it and enjoy it. Like that's my outlet for, you know, reducing stress, but I don't want to tie a business to it.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's some things that work well on bumper stickers, but like, they just, it's just not that simple. You know, not Maybe it's just not true when it comes down to it. So, yeah, I agree. But, uh, Yeah. I know like in the land business, buying landlocked properties, which there's a surprising number of landlocked parcels out there. Like they're literally useless because you can't get to them. But money can still be made on those, believe it or not, if you buy it for almost nothing. Like if you get into it with like, you know, 50 bucks or something like that, like you can probably sell it to somebody who doesn't care. Like they'll pay more than what you paid for it. But there's not this two hundred fifty thousand dollar a month expense tied to it like there is with a parking ramp. So that's uh
1: And so at that point, you're basically risking fifty dollars. You're using that example fifty dollars. Like you're you're buying a fifty dollar lottery ticket at that point. You know, thinking that you might scratch it off and it might be a winning number, and uh, you make your money back and then some. You know, but you're okay losing the fifty in the event you can't sell it. Yeah, essentially.
0: Yeah. Or you could sell it to a neighbor, but essentially it comes down to a bit of speculation. You're right, that somebody is going to want to buy that thing. And usually they do, but, you know, there's a kind of a big problem with it. You got to either fix the problem or just hope somebody will buy it with that problem. So totally different thing than a parking rent, but, you know,
1: try to draw the parallel. <laughs> to summarize that point, it's, uh, you know... Be really good at solving problems. You know, identifying what the problem is. Uh, you know, speaking to real estate, whatever the problem is, and and get really good at actually solving those problems. I mean, that that's literally how you make money in real estate: identifying the problems, the real problem, and then finding the resolution to that problem. Like that's it. Like it's. I'm not gonna say it's as simple as that, but like that's. If you can't figure that part out, then and ultimately you, you're gonna you're gonna struggle. You, you'll find yourself in some challenging scenarios that you might lose money <laughs> if you can't fix the problems. Cool. Well, Kevin, I know we're kind of coming up on our, on our time. I
0: really appreciate you talking about this. This, this was fascinating. I learned so much in the past hour here. Like I, I, I don't know, I'm excited. I want to learn more about this and um, I can't always say that about every interview we have. So I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I commend you. And I appreciate you sharing so much information about this. If people want to learn more about you uh, or check out your podcast, can you remind us again, what's your website and name of your podcast?
1: Absolutely. Uh, KevinBupp.com. Uh, you can go there. That's my website. I've got my podcast hosted there as well. And uh, Seth, if you wouldn't mind as well, I, I recently wrote a book release and I've got a free copy that I'm doing free for like next couple of months. And so if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to share that as well. They can literally get it on my website, but just go to kevinbup.com forward slash free book. Again, kevinbup.com forward slash free book. And if you're looking at the video, you can kind of see the book, I guess, part of it behind me. It's called The Cashflow Investor. And it's all about making money in commercial real estate. And it's actually got a section um, um, about mobile home parks and parking lots in there, as well as a few other asset classes that I really love. And so um, anyway, it's got some more information there of what we talked about today. So definitely grab a copy of that. It's for sale on Amazon right now for $20, but you can get it for free if you go to that, that link that I gave out. Awesome.
0: I will be sure to include that in the show notes. Again, that's retipster.com forward slash 140. For a link to that and everything else we talked about here today. And uh, thanks again, Kevin. Appreciate it. And hopefully we'll talk again soon.
1: Yeah, Seth, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun, man. Uh, Appreciate being here. Take care. You bet.